Good evening, good evening, everybody. Uh, as previously indicated, my name is Andrew Vandermoss. I am the pastor at Christ Church, PCA Church, uh, over on Breton Road, just a little bit north of 28th Street. It's a privilege to be with you here. I've been with you in the past, and it's always been a joy. It's always a joy when you can collaborate with uh, Pastor Dale, Wayne, various things that we get to do. Even during the pandemic, we've been on Zoom calls and uh, just uh, sharing, like, what are, you, what are you doing? How are we navigating this? And uh, so it's always a privilege uh, to be here and open God's Word. Uh, the text this evening is actually from 2 Kings chapter 6. Uh, if you notice, the title for the sermon was A World Full of Surprises, and maybe one of the surprises was the fact that they wrote 2 Kings chapter 2 uh, in the bulletin. Uh, but it's actually 2 Kings chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 8. The other surprise for me was I didn't know you had been in 2 Kings, that uh, Pastor Wayne had been taking you through the life of Elijah. So there is a, a very real connection between what we're going to be looking at tonight and what you looked at previously uh, in 2 Kings chapter 2. So the situation is now Elisha is in the driver's seat, so to speak. He's received the double portion of spirit from Elijah uh, as that happened. Incidentally, it's, it's interesting. If you look at the life of Elisha, there are twice as many miracles uh, attributed to him as uh, Elijah, and his ministry lasted uh, about twice as long. Uh, so he, he really did receive the, the double portion, uh, not only of God's Spirit, but also of the work. Here is a situation where the Syrians were troubled and uh, certainly wanted to fix the Elisha problem that they had, uh, but God shows up in a big way. And so uh, prepare your hearts to listen to 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servant, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him, and thus he, being Elisha, used to warn him, the king of Israel, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing, and he called his servants and he said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. So it was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So the king of, Israel sent, or of Syria sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and they surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who, uh, the, those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. 
And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots, fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria, the capital of Israel. And as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? And he answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And so he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Will you pray with me? Father, this is a passage about uh, seeing and not seeing. It's a passage about fear and safety. It's a passage about your work in the world. Lord, we pray that as we engage this passage this evening, that you would help us to behold wonderful, beautiful things in your word. We pray this all in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Fear is at the root of a lot more than we want to give it credit for. I was reading a number of years ago a book by the name of When the Mountains Echoed by Khaled Hassini. He's probably a little bit more famous for The Kite Runner. Maybe some of you have read or uh, seen that book. And one of the characters in the book says, you know, it's a funny thing, Marcos. People mostly get it backward. They think they live by what they want, but what really guides them is what they are afraid of. Now, you may think that that is true or not true. You may have quibbles with it, but there is some evidence that this is actually uh, a, a well-tested theory. Some of you are familiar with the Enneagram. Uh, whatever you may think about that, uh, there's a system there that identifies nine different types of people, uh, and at, at the core, or the base of each one is their fear. It's their core fear. That's what defines them. Now, again, uh, I'm, not proponing, uh, I'm not a proponent necessarily of the Enneagram, but the point is, is that folks have rightly identified that fears oftentimes guide us far more than we want to give them credit for. 
1975, there was a man by the name of Roger Hart. He was a sociologist, and he was conducting a study uh, of safety, relative safety, how we operate within that. So he went to a small town in Vermont, and he interviewed kids between the ages of 4 and 12 just about their patterns in the city, in their town. And as he talked to them, he would have them take them around, show them the places where they were safe, and then he would sort of draw a circle on his map, uh, these areas of safety. And what he found in 1975, that by the time a kid was 10 or 12 in this small town in Vermont, pretty much the whole town was their safety zone. He decided to recreate the, the experiment uh, again in 2014, so roughly uh, like 40 years later. Uh, he was redoing this uh, same experience or same experiment. He was talking to children and grandchildren of some of the same kids that he had interviewed before. And he asked them the exact same questions. You know, will you take me around and show me where you're safe? But it was a very different answer and a very different picture that was painted then than in 1975. Kids would generally take them around their yard and that was it. Their circle of safety had shrunk. Now, the interesting thing about the survey, and one of the things that he uh, certainly noted, was that the crime statistics uh, were unchanged. Uh, nothing had changed in the town from 1975 till 2014 that would say they were more at risk but their perception uh, of their safety and their reaction to that affected how they interacted with the world. We live in a world right now that is obsessed with safety. Uh, I listen to various podcasts. I walk into stores. I, I see be safe, stay safe all the time. Uh, we have safety with regards to our car seats. We have uh, safety with regards to our insurance policies. We, we are a country that is obsessed with safety, and that's been exacerbated, uh, of course, in the pandemic. Uh, we, we think about it now, and there's, uh, of course, a, a right aspect to that. But what I want to do tonight is I want to walk us through this passage and see what God's Word has to say about our fears uh, and see what God's Word has to say about our safety and then ask the question how it might affect the way that we engage the world around us. And I want to use as my sort of pivot points through this text the three prayers of Elisha. Uh, you notice uh, Elisha, he's a man of few words. As you study his life, he, he doesn't often say a lot, but he's often praying. And in this passage, actually, uh, there are three prayers, uh, one in verse 17, one in verse 18, and then again in verse 20. And, and these sort of are the hinges, I think, for the three surprises that we see in this passage. The first one, then, is the prayer of verse 17, when Elisha prays, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. He's talking about his servant. We don't know exactly who his servant is. We do know that the ministry of the sons of the prophets is growing, 
uh, and uh, people are, are hearing the word of the Lord. Uh, but this young man was uh, afraid. And, and really, when we meet this young man uh, who comes out verse 15, and he's either going out to do his devotions or uh, get the Dothan dispatch, whatever he was stepping out of his dwelling place to do, he was afraid. Alas, my master, look, we are surrounded, and we can really relate to him. So let me just catch you up with some context. Uh, The context is, as you heard in the reading, Israel was at war with Syria. Now, Israel as a kingdom, this is the northern tribes as opposed to Judah, the southern tribes, Israel was not following the Lord. This is probably Jehoram, who is one of Ahab's son. Uh, If we go back to 2 Kings 3, you'll find out that Jehoram wasn't quite as bad as his dad. Uh, He did put away the Baals, but he clung to uh, the idols of his grandfather, Jeroboam. So he was not walking with Yahweh, uh, but Israel, as God's nation, God's people, was in conflict with the Syrians. And so God, through the prophet Elisha, even though they were not walking with the Lord. Of course, Elisha was and the remnant was, but the nation was not, would intervene on their behalf. Uh, He would communicate with Elisha plans that the Syrians were having. Syrians, of course, were very frustrated. We have this somewhat humorous interchange uh, between the king of Syria and his, uh, his generals. He's like, listen, who of you is giving information to the Israelites? And, and, and it's a servant. This is one of the very interesting things about the Elisha stories. It's, it's always the servants who have the answer. You remember in, in 2 Kings 5 with Naaman, it's the little servant girl who tells him, go to Elisha. If you read through very carefully, it's always the servants who know. And here it's actually a servant of the Syrian king who said, you know, it's probably Elisha. Uh, Elisha's the guy who knows what you're doing in your bedroom, which is kind of a scary thought. Uh, but uh, he, he gives this information to the king of Syria. Perhaps it's because of Naaman. Naaman was a Syrian general, has just been cured of his leprosy. Word has got around about the power of the prophet, even in a place like Syria. So how does the Syrian king respond? Well, he responds like kings often respond. Uh, he responds by a show of power. He responds by saying, okay, if that's the case, let's find out where he is. He's in Dothan, okay, let's send out our crack troops and let's infiltrate by night, surround the city, and we will take this one measly little prophet and his servant with a mighty army. And that is what the servant sees when he goes out to get the paper that morning. He sees the army uh, around the city, uh, ready to take him and his master out. And it's this, then, that Elisha, that triggers Elisha's first prayer, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. You know, it's interesting when we see this little interchange here. As you see, the servant goes out and he says, what shall we do? And Elisha says, do not be afraid. The servant doesn't have to go back in and get Elisha. Elisha's already there. 
so Elisha is already seeing everything that is on the ground. He just has a very different interpretation of what is actually happening than the servant does. And that is what he prays, Lord, open his eyes. So, so what does he see? I want to suggest to you that there are three truths here that the servant sees uh, that are very helpful for us to grab hold of in terms of our own application. The first is this. He recognizes that God has a power that is different than the flesh and blood power of the Syrians. God has a power that is different than the flesh and blood power of the Syrians. You notice the, uh, the horses and chariots of fire. You, you remember la- last time when Wayne opened to you 2 Kings 2, uh, when Elijah was taken up, we see the horses and chariots of fire. If you move forward in the story to 2 Kings 13, you'll see when Elisha dies, they say something very similar, behold the horses and chariots of fire. What what are we talking about here? Are we talking about literal horses and chariots of fire? Maybe, but there is a strong connection between the horses and chariots of fire and the word of the prophet. You see, that was the power for the true Israelite. It wasn't flesh and blood. It was, the, it was the word of the prophet that was the power. And that is so hard for us to see because we, we see flesh and blood. We see, uh, we see armies. We see political powers. It was interesting you know, this past week was the Democratic National Convention, and I am I'm not picking on the Democrats alone at all, but there was a moment, a hot mic moment, where a, uh, a, uh, a conventioneer, I'll say, uh, said, you know, it's Shark Week. And this person knew very well that it was a hot mic, but sh- this person was communicating that the Democrats were going to show their power and they were going to take apart the Republicans. Now, again, I'm not picking on Democrats because Republicans are the same way. You know, we, we think exactly like the king here in this passage. We think that we move forward by power. But what Elisha is wanting his servant to see is that the power is in the Word. The power is in the Word of God as it comes into the hearts and lives of His people. It doesn't have anything to do with flesh and blood. And we're going to see that as we go throughout this story. Think about that Reformation hymn, The Prince of Darkness Grim, We Tremble Not for Him. One little word shall fell Him. And that is what the servant, that's what we are invited to see that when we are afraid, it's because we have not rightly seen that the Word of God is the true power source in our world. Secondly, uh, and this is closely related, what, what the servant sees is not only that the Word has power, but that the, the true enemy is not the flesh and blood. And Paul says this very clearly, right? We fight not against flesh and blood, 
but we fight against principalities and powers. Uh, and and we, we recognize that, that this is true. Like our, our enemies are not our political enemies. Our enemies are not people who are culturally different than us. Our enemies uh, are not our spouse if your marriage is bad. Our enemies are not uh, that, that our boss who is making our life miserable. Because there is a realm here that the servant sees that exists in all of our life. Uh, some of you are, are fans of the, the Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, and you know in the movies when, when Frodo takes the ring of the power and he puts it on his finger, he's transported, and he can see not only the flesh and blood, but he can see the ring race, and he can see Soren's eye, and he can see the three that, that hold the elven rings. And that's kind of what God is doing here through this servant. He's, he's like pulling back the curtain, and he's saying, you think the enemy is right in front of you. You think the enemy is the virus. You think the enemy is your political, ally, or your political opponents. You, you think the enemy is your spouse or your boss or your neighbor or whoever your enemy might be. But he is reminding us, he is reminding us that that's not where the real battle is. The real battle is, is somewhere else. And, and then furthermore, he helps us to see that we have allies as well as enemies. And, and that's what this servant sees, and that's what Elisha says, greater are those who are with us than those who are with them. You see, he was only counting the people on the ground. He had forgotten the mighty host. And, and this is exactly what uh, the Apostle John says in 1 John 4, 4, he says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You see, this is the consistent testimony of Scripture, that when we are afraid, Psalm 56, I will trust in him. Why? Because greater is he and greater are those who are with him than those who are arrayed against us. And then this means, by extension, thirdly, uh, that we're safe. You see, it, it's not about staying safe. You would, it would be silly to, to, to tell this young servant of Elisha, okay, now stay safe. Why would that be silly? Because he is safe. He, he is surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. He is surrounded by the chariots and horsemen of Israel. He is safe, period. It is an indicative. It is a fact. It is not something that he has to strive for. In fact, it's not something that he can even do on his own. He is safe because he is with Elisha. Because Elisha is the prophet of God. Because God has made him safe. And this is the testimony of scriptures. I, I just did a cursory search uh, on these words here. Um, Do not be afraid. That exact construct uh, comes at least 38 times throughout scriptures. And, and then there's so many other ways in which it comes. Do not fear or uh, be strong, be very courageous, over and over and over and over again. But I could never find once in the Bible where it told us to stay safe. 
Over and over again, it says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Because I am with you. I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. You are precious and honored in my sight. And I love you, God says in Isaiah 43 to his people. You are safe. That's surprise number one. Surprise number one is that when our eyes are open, we realize that we are held so securely in the hands of our Father. Now, surprise number two, this is the difficult surprise here. The second prayer is uh, that Elisha prays the Lord and says, verse 18, please strike this people with blindness. He's talking about the Syrians, and, and they are struck with a form of blindness, probably not physical blindness because you see that they're able to follow him. Uh, it could be like a befuddlement, some sort of daze that they are in, but they are dulled in their senses for sure. And as they are in this state of blindness, uh, he leads them to Samaria. It's about 11 miles from Dothan uh, down to Samaria. He leads them down to Samaria. This is a little bit like uh, the scarlet and uh, gray of uh, Columbus, the Ohio State Buckeyes, uh, being blinded and led right into the big house in Ann Arbor. Uh, so these are bitter rivals, and they are being led, and then, you know, Elisha prays that they would open their eyes, they do, and they see that they are in Samaria. Oh my, uh, they did not expect that, they were not excited about that, I am sure you can see the king of Israel wanted to treat them in a very kingly way, like should I strike them down, uh, should I strike them down, but they are in a bad place. Here is what I think we need to see and understand about this. They are in a presumably bad place. It's actually uh, going to turn into a place of great blessing for them, as we're going to see in a moment. But this is uh, a picture, I believe, of often how the Christian life works. Uh, we find ourselves in a fog. We find ourselves, you know, sort of blindly making our way through the world, and we end up in the place that we can least imagine ourselves. We can least imagine ourselves, if you're a Syrian, you know, in Samaria, defenseless, surrounded by Israelis. Like, that is the last place that you would want to be. And we find ourselves here now. I mean, in so many ways, you know, as we've walked through the months of this pandemic, as we have watched our, our culture sort of boil in this cauldron, uh, we've seen our city torn with riots in ways that we maybe thought we would never see. We find ourselves in Samaria. Maybe some of you are in your own personal Samaria as you are going through job loss or you can't find a job after you've completed all your schooling. You, you find yourself in a place that seems confusing. Using. It seems dark. It seems all wrong. But you see, this is the way that God so often works. God works in the darkness, or at least what is darkness to us. But what is darkness to us is light to Him. He's got a plan. He's working it out for these Syrians. 
Uh, And he's got a plan. He's working it out for us. But the gospel way is always the inside out, upside down way. It doesn't make sense on the ground. Why am I in Samaria? In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a, a man born blind. And it's interesting there, um, the, they're talking a lot about these same themes that we see here in 2 Kings 6. Um, in, in John 9, the, the Pharisees oversee, overhear a, a discussion that Jesus was having uh, with the people, and they ask a question like, wait a minute, Jesus, are, are you saying that we are blind? Because Jesus was saying things like this. He said, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. You, you see that inside-out, upside-down logic. Like it's the not seeing that see, and those who see who are blind. This is John 9, 39 to 41. And so the Pharisees say, well, what are you saying? Are you saying that we are blind? And Jesus said to them, well, if, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. Uh, but now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. What is it that Jesus is saying to these Pharisees? He's saying, you are standing on your own ability, your own strength, your own righteousness. And, and you're saying that you see. And so your guilt remains because you cannot take that guilt to Jesus. You can't even see it. But if you admit it, if you come to the place of weakness, then you are in exactly the right place for God to do the work in your life. And that is exactly what happened to the Syrians here. You know, Elisha then prays in verse 20. He says, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. I mean, this was the ultimate weakness for them. But it was also just the threshold of great blessing. Because God's ways are so different than our ways. You remember, you know, the the way of kings. We see the king of Syria. I've got an Elisha problem. What am I going to do? I am going to send power to to take him in Dothan. Uh, The way of kings, the Israelite king. I have a Syrian problem, but now I have these Syrians. What should I do, Elisha? Shall I strike off their head? Should I strike them down? I mean, we, we just are drunk with power. You know, our country, our world is drunk with power. We think that is the way forward. But here's what I love about Elisha. He just flies right over the politics of his day. I mean, Middle Eastern politics has always been convoluted, remains convoluted. Syrians, Israelis, Jordanians, Palestinians, Lebanese. I mean, it's always a mess. But what does Elisha say? He's like, no. You are not going to kill these people. In fact, what I'd like to do is I'd like you to throw them a party. I'd like you to go get some food and water, and I'd like for you to prepare a feast for them. And that's exactly what the Israelites do. They, they follow the uh, orders of Elisha. They prepare a great feast uh, before them. Verse 23, when they had eaten and drunk, the king sent them away. They went back to their master, the king of Syria, 
And lo and behold, the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel, at least for a good long time. They were looking for an end to war. They thought the way to do it was by exercising power. But what Elisha showed them is that the gospel always has another way. The gospel's way is to fly above that and is to actually invite them to the feast. So the scarlet and gray is in the big house and we bring out a feast and we all tailgate together and celebrate the goodness of God. You see, this is such a picture of the gospel because we are led right from Dothan and Samaria to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there we see the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Incidentally, Elisha and Jesus, Yeshua, are are essentially the same name. Uh, Yeshua, Yahweh saves. Uh, Elisha, God saves. It's the same name. So every story that you read about Elisha, you should see Jesus so clearly in this story. And we come to the Garden of Gethsemane, and and Jesus is arrested. And, And what does Peter do? He takes the way of kings. He takes out his sword, and he strikes off the ear of the servant Malchus. And, And what does Jesus say to him? Peter, put that thing away. What are you doing? This is not the way because Jesus understands the tears in the kingdom. He he says, this is Matthew 26, 52 and 53, do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels, 72,000 angels at my disposal. He recognizes greater are those who are with me than those who have come against me. But here's the beautiful thing about Yeshua. He willingly eschews all help. He willingly puts it aside, and he descends into the very darkness that fell upon the Syrians, and he went into the heart of the enemy territory. And it was right there on that cross in the inky blackness that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he knew that the way up is the way down. That what makes sense to Satan and to all of his minions misses the mark. I mean, this is Aslan being taken to the stone table and the white witch and all of her minions killing him and thinking that they had the upper hand through the way of power. But they didn't know that there was a deeper magic at work. They didn't know that when someone willingly, an innocent someone willingly gives themselves into their hand, that atonement is being made. And Jesus there in the darkness on his, you know, Golgotha, his Samaria makes atonement for you and for me, for all who will surrender their lives to him. It's the story of the gospel. And here's the beautiful part. 
Why did Jesus do it? Because he's got a feast that he wants us to participate in. He is setting right now the wedding feast of the Lamb. I mean, this has been the story all the way throughout Israel's history, whether it was prophecies like Isaiah 25, where God said through the prophet, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Or Jesus, when talking about Jews and Gentiles, he says, many will come from the east and the west, and they will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Why did, uh, you know, the Pharisees said, you know, why are your, your disciples, why are they eating and drinking? He said, because the bridegroom has come. It's the time for feasting. You see, when we really understand the, the picture of the gospel, when we and I don't mean just understand it by our heads, but when we really sink our teeth into it, when we really, you know, drop our anchor into the truths of the gospel, we realize that our circles of safety are so wide that we can go anywhere in this world. We can engage with anyone without fear. Because Christ has gone before us, He has defeated our enemies, and He has set the table. And now our job is to actually invite people to that feast. Our job is to invite them first to the Savior and then to the feast. You know, come to this one who has helped me see. Come to this one who has made us safe. Come to this one who has set the table for you and for me. Now, when I say that we don't have to fear anything, please understand that you know, God does not want us to be unstewardly with our bodies, you know, start going crazy bridge jumping or being around people who have proven themselves unsafe in the past. I, I'm not talking about that kind of thing. But I'm talking about getting out there with the power of the Word and proclaiming to people that you say, there's no way that they would ever believe. There is no way they would ever come to Harvest Church on a Sunday evening and listen to preaching. There's no way that they would. Well, of course they would, because the Word has power, and the Word is beautiful, and the Word invites us. It invites us to come and to celebrate the feast. Do you see why getting a handle on our fears is so important? Because it is really going to affect your sphere of influence. And the greater your fears, the smaller your sphere of influence will be. But the more that we can rest on the finished work of Jesus, the more that we can sink our teeth into His promises, greater are those that are with us than those who are against us. The more that we do that, just watch and set the table because the feast is coming. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank You for this Word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you descended into the ultimate darkness in order to deliver us uh, from our enemies and to deliver us from our fears. 
Lord, we pray that we would hear the word that you spoke to your young servant. And Lord, we're so grateful because uh, that's a young man who was seeking after you, and he had his own fears. And Father, we come tonight and we're, we're seeking after you. You know that we are so much like that man, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, but we pray uh, that we would hear more loudly than the news, more loudly than uh, the fears that our grandparents are speaking to us or whatever it might be. We would hear most loudly your word that says, do not be afraid. Greater are those that are with us than those who are against us. We thank you for this word. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond by singing. Great hymn. We will feast in the house of Zion. And may these words really kindle in your heart that anticipation and longing. Let's stand together as we sing. One more hymn with amazing grace. But read these words. These are the words that I uh, You know that peace and strength. Press Lord your peace.
to receive the benediction. After the benediction, we'll have one more hymn with amazing grace. But receive these words. These are the words that uh, God gave to His servant Joshua before they went into the promised land, before they faced the giants that were in the land. He said, be strong, very courageous. Do not be frightened. Do, do not be dismayed. For, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. May you know that peace, that peace, peace and that strength in the presence of the Lord your God wherever you go. Go in peace.